Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. You can have inner peace and clarity even in the midst of chaos. Welcome to Spiritual Practice for Crazy Times with Phil Goldberg. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to this special series of programs, which just happens to have the same title as my latest book. Our goal is to bring you expert advice and guidance for remaining spiritually secure and strong, able to find joy and all the blessings of life, even in the most challenging times, not just this unprecedented pandemic, but anytime the trials and tribulations of our crazy world erupt in your life. Every episode features a wise, compassionate, experienced spiritual teacher drawn from a broad range of traditions and paths. I encourage you to listen closely Write down any ideas that resonate with you, and there will be many of them. So you'll be able to develop an inventory of practices to draw from when you need a spiritual boost and a way to reconnect with our divine source. Our premises that we all have within us, the sanctuary of peace and the fortress of strength. It's not something we have to find or build It's already present at the core of our being as our truest, deepest, highest self. It's our essence. And all the spiritual traditions have the primary purpose of reuniting us with that essence or awakening us to what we truly are. Eternal beings with an earthly curriculum. The more we connect with that infinite reality, the better equipped we are to face our challenges with dignity and take action to make the world a little less crazy. That said, let me introduce today's guest. Mirabai Starr is an award-winning author of creative nonfiction and contemporary translations of sacred literature. She teaches and speaks internationally on contemplative practice and interspiritual dialogue and she's also a certified bereavement counselor and a prolific author her books include dark night of the soul about saint john of the cross the interior castle about teresa of avila the beautiful memoir caravan of no despair and wild mercy living the fierce and tender wisdom of the women mystics. And I hope she will share some of that tender mercy with us today. Welcome, Mirabai. Thank you, Phil. It's always a joy to be in holy conversation with you, my brother. Thank you. Let's begin with a personal question. We've all been through an unprecedented period of challenge with the pandemic this past year and ongoing. How did you respond to it? How have you adapted? And and did anything about your own response to it surprise you in any way? Hmm. Boy, everything was impacted by this. And, you know, I think some of it is a matter of temperament. You know, I think that I am somewhat introverted. I'm not an extreme introvert, but I always fall a little bit onto the I side of the spectrum, the introverted side. And so it was a deep drink of water for me personally to be able to disengage from the compulsions of daily life. I was traveling a lot and teaching all over the world, really. And and even though it was exciting and I felt um, just bathed in grace with all of the the deep connections that happened in that traveling and teaching life, I was, I was really worn out and, and, um, too, too much connecting. (laughs) And so being able to just turn inward and, and become intentionally simpler and more still was personally 
has been, still is, um, very healing for me. At the same time, I've been very aware of the suffering in the world, and I hold those two things, the grace of my, of of the privilege of the life that I live, I'm able to teach online and so on, with the increased and unfolding suffering in the world. Yes, I understand that entirely, holding those two things together. Um, There's many people who have been privileged enough to essentially make this period a time of uh, introspection and almost like a retreat. Yeah. Um, but many other people ha- are are in pain. Did you did you find yourself relying on any specific practices or turning to any uh, specific uh, uh, teachers or role models that inspire you? Mm. Well, that has been one of the greatest privileges of this time is that I have time. And you know, so many of us tell ourselves the the story that we can't afford to do extensive spiritual practice because we're too busy. And I've definitely fallen into that narrative um, many times myself. And during the pandemic, I had no excuse. I still have. (laughs) And so every morning I've just luxuriated in, in the practices that I've done for, I don't know, close to 40 years, but I have much more space around them now. So I um I have always started my day since I was about 14 believe it or not when I met uh, Haridas Baba from mm. uh, India and and he taught me hatha yoga uh, asanas and I have started almost every day of my life with sun salutations you know uh-huh. just four, four sun salutations it takes about 10 minutes and my body, I almost feel like my body, because I just turned 60 the day before yesterday. Happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you. I almost feel like my body has formed itself around these simple asanas. But, you know, sun salutations sort of use every every part of the body and touch every organ. But it's also this deep spiritual uh, connection to to the earth and the sky, you know, to greeting the life force, the surya, the the sun, into your, and taking it into your body. So I just feel like everything about my body has kind of formed itself around that simple but consistent practice. And the same thing with silent sitting practice. Not everybody is, as you beautifully point out, Phil, um, is is sort of temperamentally inclined to sit on a cushion in silence with your eyes closed. I mean, there are many different ways to engage in contemplative practice, but that simple silent sitting practice has also been so much part of my life, my spiritual life, my daily life for so many years that I cannot separate myself from that practice. But during this past year, I've extended my yoga practice and I've extended my meditation practice and it has created this uh, kind of garden in which I have taken refuge in a way that I never have have before, I would say. And I allow, am I talking too much in response to this question? Not at all. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have allowed that meditation practice to morph day by day depending on kind of what I'm facing that day or where, how I woke up. In other words, some days I feel this kind of deep hush in my being or an invitation to be quiet. And then I go to the cushion and I just sit, you know, in in Zen, in certain lineages, the practice is called just sitting. And I don't, I don't impose any of the many delicious methods and methodologies that have been taught to me over the decades. Other days, I'm feeling this kind of love longing in my heart, this devotional urge. And then I do japa. And japa, for those of you who are not familiar with that that term from Hinduism, is the repetition of the divine names. But I, because I've been exposed to so many different spiritual traditions, even if I use amala, which is the the um, Hindu and Buddhist string of prayer beads, 108 beads, even if I use that traditional uh, string of prayer beads, 
in Hinduism and Buddhism, I might do a Sufi mantra, or which is called dhikr, or the zikr, the repetition of, of the divine names, or I might do something in Latin, or Hebrew, or Greek, but, but I do a mantra, and that connects me with my spiritual heart in a way that my being is, is calling out for. Other days I do certain kinds of breathing practices, pranayama practices that have been taught to me, that particularly one that my lifelong friend and mentor Ramdas taught me when I was probably 16 that I do um, that I do when I'm sitting. And so yes, I love that I have access to multiple spiritual technologies, centering prayer in the Christian tradition. Uh, um, metta practice in the Vipassana tradition of sending loving kindness, starting with the self and expanding to all beings. So many different practices. When my heart is broken for the world, for the pain of the world, which is um, pretty much every day, uh, I can do Tonglen practice from the Tibetan Buddhist tradition of taking in the sorrow of the world into my heart, breathing it in, and then breathing out relief from suffering for all who are suffering, connecting with, starting with my own particular flavor of, of pain, and then knowing that my pain is a signal of my participation in the human condition, and therefore belongs to everyone, and that I can connect with the pain of the world and I can do something about it even if it starts just on my cushion in the mornings. So many options for, for that silent sitting. Well, you have just modeled um, true transtraditionality, tra true interspirituality by drawing from all these traditions and uh, confirming one of my own premises, which is the importance of having essentially an inventory of practices to draw from, uh, depending on your needs at, at that time. And I will tell our listeners that many, <laughs> this sounds self-serving, but um, instructions and explanations for a lot of what Mirabai mentioned, you'll find in my book, Spiritual Practice for Crazy Times, but also uh, we're lucky enough to be able to have access to many sources of uh, instruction on these matters online and uh, in our local areas. So I encourage all of you to uh, pursue those instructions. Uh, Mirabai, uh, when you have been doing classes and workshops online uh, this past year, what, what are the main things uh, people uh, have to deal with? What are the, their biggest concerns and, and how, what do you advise them? Mm. So a few a few things that I see consistently arising. One is this almost selfless uh, longing, that yearning that I see in people to make of their lives an offering to others. You know, over the the decades that I've been a seeker and and sometimes find myself in the strange position of teacher. I, I saw a lot of personal drive for perfection, for enlightenment, for liberation, for salvation. And I see almost none of that anymore. Hmm. Everyone that I encounter is, is feeling this deep desire, like the bodhisattva, you know, to vow to stay close to the bone of the human condition until all beings are free from suffering or in in the Jewish tradition which is one of my <laughs> one of my many beloved traditions and happens to be my ancestral tradition there's the teaching of tikkun olam right which is the mending of the world it's it's based on the cosmology that when the world was created the, the Holy One poured her light into these vessels, but the radiance was too intense and the vessels shattered, scattering the shards of light and shards of darkness throughout the cosmos and creating all that is. And that human beings were created to with the particular task of restoring those vessels to wholeness, of finding every shard of light and lifting it up. 
and re- remaking the broken world. And we do this through every act of, of loving kindness, chesed. And so that's that's sort of this urge that I see in people is, is the bodhisattva vow to stay on the wheel of samsara, of births and deaths and rebirths until all our friends can come along <laughs> into the vast oneness of love that our souls that our souls most desire. And also to know that we are doing something to mend the tattered web of interbeing, as Thich Nhat Hanh calls it, to which we all um, belong. So I'm seeing that. And I'm also seeing this um, weariness that comes with that urge, right? You know, that we... We want so much to be of service. We want to find what is ours to do. And often we'll compare ourselves to other prophets out there who are doing kind of grassroots activism and think there's something wrong with us if we're not doing it that way. And so there's a sorrow in our hearts that we can't quite find what is ours to do and to believe, to believe that it's enough or that we're not too much, too human, too broken to to be able to participate. And so that's another theme I see rising in people is this kind of um, weariness and even despair, which, of course, John of the Cross, the great 16th century Spanish uh, says is that dark night of the soul just can't do anything to remedy our perceived brokenness. This is the beginning of true blessedness, because this is when we can do nothing but but surrender. And this pandemic has given us all opportunities for a deeper and deeper surrender. And it appears to not be over. I mean, not just the pandemic, but the, but the liminal space that we're in. Mm. I'm uh, act very happy to hear that you found people uh, having this unselfish urge to do something about the conditions of the world. Um, when we went into the pandemic, I, I was writing and, and thinking, I hope that happens. I hope people see our interconnectedness and the importance of being engaged because there, there's a lot of tendency to withdraw among people on the spiritual path. What do you advise people to do uh, when they have that I, I want I want to do something, but we're not only uh, limited by the conditions of the pandemic, but the circumstances of our lives as well. Yes, one of one of the teachings that most speaks to my heart that I that I just uh, referred to is the Dark Night of the Soul by Saint John of the Cross, and there are many mystical masters, women men, people of all genders, people on the margins, those voices on the margins of, from women, from people of, of color, from transgendered people, the people whose voices have traditionally not been heard, that are teaching us precisely how to deconstruct our preconceptions about what holiness is, what service is, and allow ourselves to begin by not knowing. And I think that the way to find what is ours to do is paradoxically to release all of our ideas on on what it is to be useful, to be of service, to be um, enough in, in this world. So one of my favorite practices has always been, and now more than ever, cultivating a Sabbath practice, a Sabbath uh, once a week. So when I was a young single mom is when I started this practice and it was when I could least afford to take a day a week off from the to-do list, the endless overwhelming tyranny of tasks, right? And, And a Jewish friend said, you know, I know you light the candles on Friday night and you welcome the Shekhinah, the indwelling feminine presence of the divine beautiful mirabai but what about actually practicing this and keeping the sabbath holy so that in other words when the sun goes down on friday night you light those candles you welcome the shekhinah which is the spirit of the sabbath the the feminine it's it's really the this the sacred feminine 
Um, and then you wake up on Saturday morning and you don't attend to the, the multitude of tasks that compel you and impel you and drive you and guilt trip you and boss you around all the rest of the week. But you actually enter into a sacred space. Heschel, Abraham Joshua Heschel, the, the great 20th century philosopher and activist, said that Shabbat, the Sabbath, is like building a temple in time and then entering it. So how about, Mirabai, enter it? So I did, and I entered it with my children and my loved ones, and, and everyone came along with me, not necessarily doing the full four hours from, from Friday to sunset on Saturday, but but knowing that it was sacred to me and that that was a time that I wasn't going to get more shit done. Like, that was not the, the objective. It was about being. It was about reading poetry. It was about taking long walks and making beautiful food and making love and all the... the um, Chayim, the life-giving ah, welcome that our souls give to the Sabbath. So during the pandemic, this is a practice I've really tried to share with people. And I think I've converted hundreds, <laughs> if not thousands, <laughs> to keeping the Sabbath holy. And you don't have to be Jewish. <laughs> I'm glad you said that. You don't have to do it from Friday to Saturday. <laughs> Could be any day. Oh my gosh, that would be amazing. You can shape the Sabbath to fit your life, but to do it on, to make it as a commitment, as like any spiritual practice. I mean, that's why it was a commandment in, in Judaism. It wasn't a, you know, it's a polite suggestion because the Holy One, it is said, knows that we will never think that we've gotten everything done and, and can now be with God. And and here in America, this predominantly Christian country, uh, we used to, even when I was a kid, things were closed on Sundays. And, you know, it was understood that Sunday was the day for, you know, Sabbath, essentially. Um, and now it's football day or shopping day or, you know, go to brunch or whatever when in, in non-pandemic times. So it's it's a good reminder and in that context, um, to bring it back to uh, the notion of service, um, how do you see the relationship between taking that time and being of service? Thank you for <laughs> reminding me what we were talking about a while ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so one of the tricks to finding what is ours to do in this world, which Jewish mysticism says is imprinted on our souls the day we are born, and it's just a matter of remembering and finding our way to it. Uh, along with, by the way, not only is what is ours to do imprinted on our souls, the the tools with which to do it are also there for us to, to draw from. Um, but when we are frenetically engaged in life, the daily tasks of, of this life, it's easy to uh, have that still small voice that shows us the way and that is inside of us, that's all of our birthright, obscured and silenced by all of, of the activity and the, and the ideas, the preconceived notions. And so a Sabbath practice, a, a sitting practice, time in nature without um, having your, your phone with you and listening to more podcasts about how to be more spiritual, but just being present in nature on the beach or in the woods or in the park or wherever you can connect with, with Mother Earth. These are all ways to quiet the monkey mind and hear the surprising truths of our own hearts that are speaking to us that want so much for us to to hear and be inspired, not uh, guilt-tripped into doing something, but but filled with the beauty of being aligned with what is ours to do and be and allow in this world. And when I say allow, I so much of it is being becoming that hollow reed from time to time through which the Holy One can sing her most beautiful music. Part of my practice, by the way, in the mornings is after my meditation, I have a little bamboo flute that 
uh, I bought from J.G. Sachdev in 1977 when I was 16 years old, <laughs> and I still have it. I've carried, I carried it. I've carried it all over the world. I played it in the Alhambra in Granada, Spain, mm. where the Alhambra was like this thing that you had to get tickets a year in advance. You know, I was living in Sevilla, studying Spanish literature, and I. I would take the bus to Granada and just play my flute in the Alhambra. This flute has gone with me everywhere. So in the mornings, after I'm, I've done sitting, I play my flute for a couple of minutes. And it's so delicious to me. I'm not a real, a real musician, but, but I play a few sacred melodies on that flute and have for many, many years. And it's it reminds me of that, making myself... Uh, a space through which the music of the universe can flow. And I think that's that's a, an invitation that's extended to all of us every day. Has everything, Phil, to me, to do with beauty. Beauty. Not just, not just the rigors of spiritual discipline or the, the um, grim... Oh, the grim effort to do something useful. Mirabai, that sounds like a good place to pause. We have to take a short break and we will be right back. All are welcome. We're glad you found us. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Spiritual Practice for Crazy Times with your host, Phil Goldberg. Welcome back. We're here with Mirabai Starr, and uh, I just learned that my friend Mirabai lived in Seville, where I Spent a little bit of time in the 70s. I'm older, so um, Franco was still in power when I was there. <laughs> and uh, we uh, just learned that she plays the flute. Mirabai, uh, coming back to um, something you mentioned earlier. You mentioned uh, St. John of the Cross and Dark Night of the Soul. Many people use that expression, dark night of the soul, to essentially mean, you know, any rough time they go through. But it has a more particular meaning in the Christian mystical tradition, doesn't it? Can you, can you tell us something about that? Because I suspect it applies to a lot of people these days. Mm, yes, Phil. And I'm sure many of you who are gathering around this little fire today can relate to those feelings that uh, of kind of an extended lassitude or or apathy or dryness like an internal aridity that that the inner landscape has turned into a, a kind of desert moreover i think many of us are looking outward and seeing that the world itself has kind of plunged into a space of collective darkness, of the disintegration of many of our cherished uh, constructs and institutions and, and things that used to give us meaning no longer are as a, as a human family. So what is the dark night of the soul? For John of the Cross, it was... It was a spiritual, it is a spiritual crisis, yes, but it isn't just a matter, as you say, Phil, of weathering a rough time, you know, a difficult divorce, even the death of a beloved, uh, or, or even a string of challenging events, which sometimes pile up, right? And then we're like, oh my God, uh, this is a dark night of the soul. I don't know how, how I'll ever crawl out of it or claw my way out of it. Um, 
And an external set of conditions can certainly be a catalyst for the kind of spiritual crisis John of the Cross was speaking of. But what he's really talking about, okay, here's the secret. The dark night of the soul only appears to be dark because what's really happening is we are being flooded with divine radiance and it's blinding. It's blinding at first. We can't uh, see anything because we're, our eyes are not accustomed to direct perception of that divine light. So John says that there are two kinds of of night that our souls go through. One is what he called the night of sense, and the other is the night of spirit. And in the night of sense, what's happening is that we are being kind of weaned from our spiritual attachments. So it's really interesting to have this conversation, Phil, about spiritual practices to help us get through crazy times that keep us sane and grounded and balanced and able to be a source of, of peace and sanity for others, right? But what John of the Cross is talking about is that sometimes we get overly attached to our spiritual practices. And we, because we achieve this or attain a kind of um, spiritual high sometimes from engaging in these practices. When I do kirtan with Krishnadas, I get high, no doubt about it. My heart opens and warms and floods with a feeling of bliss. And that's wonderful. And that helps nurture our souls along the way. But we can get to the point where we get so addicted to that feeling that we actually bypass, we use it to bypass direct experience because the naked direct encounter with the sacred feels like too much to bear. Mm-hmm. So that's the night of sense. And then the night of spirit is when our conceptual constructs collapse, where we can no longer prop ourselves up with any of our ideas about what the spiritual life is about or what ultimate reality is. And all of the ways we were attached to conceiving of God or the Tao or the Dharma or any of it is it be, becomes almost ridiculous, sounds ridiculous in our ears. Like, what does that mean? Our cherished prayers and vows and sacred literature and all of it feels, scriptures feel meaningless. But this is important to go through and actually surrender to those periods of, of aridity where we no longer feel that felt sense of the sacred. We can no longer conceive of of what it is, what it means, what what the spiritual life is. And we must, John of the Cross says, stop messing around with the master's masterpiece and just let her make art out of us and just be hmm. still. just be still. It's very interesting that you should mention this kind of um despair and disillusionment with uh, the teachings we we come to embrace. Um, in my experience, people, especially in difficult times, uh, will enter into that kind of, um, maybe it was all bogus, maybe all this is not true, everything I believed in. Uh, and then they have doubt, and then they feel guilty for having that doubt. Do you run into that, and what do you tell people? Oh, I do. That was beautifully said, Phil. All the time, people, yes, they, they think they're doing And John of the Cross wrote about this in the, in the 1600s, I mean, in the 1500s. All the time, people think that they're doing something wrong when they enter this period of aridity and unknowing. It's it's like, so there's two feelings that often are going on in a dark night of the soul. One is, God has abandoned me. And for those of you who are non-theistic, um, you know, you can translate that any way you like. But that that the universe has given up on me because I'm just not good enough. I'm not doing it right. And the other feeling is, um, I 
just don't I, I'm I've given up because it just doesn't it's not true it's not real everything I believed has proven itself to be empty and so my my advice is very similar to John of the Cross's advice which is when you're having a spiritual meltdown melt allow yourself to not know what the hell is going on or what it means and if it means anything it's not a problem or as Thomas More says it's not you know your soul's your soul is not sick and needs to be cured it's rather allowing yourself to be to care for your soul in the sense of not imposing more judgments and restrictions upon yourself but allowing yourself to rest in this fertile darkness which is which leads me to maybe my deepest offering for these times which is to allow ourselves to reclaim the feminine wisdom that lies at the heart of all the world's great spiritual traditions that we find mostly in the mystical traditions that says instead of using meditation for instance as a bludgeon to beat yourself into submission use all engage with all of these beautiful spiritual treasures as refuge, as sanctuary, as, as love offerings that you can let yourself down into. It, like the, the feminine arms of the great mother who will receive you when, when you're battered and weary. And, and you, you don't have to believe in a divine mother or a sacred feminine in order to take refuge in her. You can use what my friend Ramdas called your holy imagination. Just imagine that you are allowing yourself to be enfolded by the great mother who's got you. She's got you when everything feels empty and exhausting and stupid. Very good. Um Mirabai, a lot of people have had to deal with loss of one kind or another uh, this past year, and if they didn't, uh, they have and will at other points in their lives. Uh, your book, Caravan of No Despair, is subtitled A Memoir of Loss and Transformation, um, and it centers on, on the most a difficult loss any of us can imagine when you're the, the death of your own daughter. Um, may, would you mind sharing with people uh, what you learned from that uh, tragedy and, and um, how, uh, how loss can be turned into something called transformation? Mm. Thank you, Phil. Well, this, the short version of the story, for those of you who are not familiar with it, is, is that my first book of, I don't know, a dozen books was a translation of Dark Night of the Soul by St. John of the Cross, the 16th century mystic. And the day that that book came out, my 14-year-old daughter Jenny was killed in a car accident. And so these two things dovetailed precisely the the release into the world of, of my fresh contemporary kind of non-religious really translation of this of this classic mystical text on the transformational power of deep suffering and the most unbearable anguish that I could ever imagine having to face. And so that that first year, a couple of years, are just a blur for me. But what I knew enough uh, to do was to do nothing. And I knew this from having become intimate with this very teaching of the dark night of the soul, in which John of the Cross, like a dear uh, brother, a, the, a close, nurturing friend, invites us to just sit in the darkness and allow it to hold us 
because there is absolutely nothing we can do through our own power to remake reality. And so slapping all kinds of spiritual ideas and platitudes and even actions known as spiritual practices upon it only increase that kind of um, dissonance that our souls are feeling. But by allowing ourselves to breathe into the deep darkness, the harrowing, sorrow, the the truth of the human condition without um, the effort to fix it or change it doesn't transform it, but it allows the possibility for transformation to unfold. Very, very good. Um, to shift to uh, another of your books, your most recent, as far as I can tell, Wild Mercy. The, the subtitle of that is Living the Fierce and Tender Wisdom of the Women Mystics. So we've covered a male mystic, <laughs> John, John of the Cross. Who are the women mystics that uh, you most are drawn to and, and what can they offer us? Mm, there are so many so that book and it yes it is my most recent book although I've just finished the first draft of a memoir about my mom who's an incredible human being the the thing about wild mercy <clears throat> is that I was sort of excavating the the jewels of the treasures of, of feminine wisdom across all the, the major world's spiritual traditions, right? And and in the process of doing so, I fell in love with every one of these women mystics and also the goddesses and the archetypes of, of feminine wisdom from Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, Taoism, Christianity, Islam, Judaism. And and so there are there are a few that I would say have become my true allies along the way that are kind of always with me. And, and of course, the, the main one would probably be Teresa of Avila, Santa Teresa de Avila. And I say, of course, because I, after translating Dark Night of the Soul, I was invited to translate The Interior Castle by St. Teresa of Avila, who was really one of the cross's mentor, his guru, his spiritual master. And she is incredible. And all these years that I have been deeply engaged with Teresa of Avila, I, I still continually uncover more beauty and meaning in her writings and in our friendship, because I truly feel like she's she's my deepest friend. And, and so Teresa is one of the advocates of finding the Holy One, who she mostly refers to as the Beloved, in the depths, in the center of our own souls. The whole interior teaching of the interior castle is about making the trip <laughs> from the head to the heart, the, as Rhonda says, the trip from the head to the heart, or the journey from the exterior parts of our lives deeper and deeper into this round womb-like space of the soul. And she says that the beloved chooses to dwell in the center of our being because that's the most beautiful place in all of creation. Where else would the Holy One want to be than inside of us? And the, and the beloved is constantly beckoning us. Like Krishna, I think of it as being like, the Krishna's flute, that he plays the flute on the banks of the Yamuna River and, and beckons the gopis. And they just, they just hear the sound of that flute music and their hearts are inflamed with love longing and they come running. And that's what our souls do. The, the beloved is beckoning us from the center of our very own souls. And we move ever inward. And it gets darker. But it gets lighter. It's the paradox of the of the spiritual path. At first, it's like 
the moradas here in northern New Mexico, where I live, are these windowless adobe sacred spaces where the the um, hermanos penitentes, this penitente brotherhood that's kind of built around the passion of Christ. They they do their their ceremonies, their rituals in these dark adobe round rooms. And that's what the, the Pueblo people here too in Taos, the Taos Pueblo people do ceremony, kivas, which are these deep underground round spaces. And that's what Teresa's talking about. In fact, she calls them Las Moradas Místicas, these these seven dwellings of the in, of the interior castle. I mean, she came from Spain, but there's, of course, a connection between Spain and northern New Mexico. The conquistadores came from Spain and, and founded these kind of mystical brotherhoods here and sisterhoods. But anyway, that there's this paradox of darkness and light, like John of the Cross, the, the blinding radiance. And Teresa invites us to turn inward and find our way home to the beloved in our own soul. So in other words, we don't have to ask permission from any authority figures. We don't have to go through any intermediaries. We it's, it's a direct experience of love that the mystics are, are telling us all is what we're born to have. It's our birthright to have this naked, direct encounter with love itself. And and in fact, the the ideas and the and the spiritual authority figures can be impediments to that direct experience. Uh, Mirabai, where uh, we seem to be in. Um almost at a time where we can see the light at the end of the tunnel of this pandemic. Uh, this interview is, is airing on May 13th. Um, in here in the U.S., there's opportunities arising for people to be together again and to resume normal life. <clears throat> Sad to say it's not the case in other parts of the world. Um, what do you hope people individually and we collectively have learned through this uh, testing period that can be applied when we start to edge our way back to um, more of a semblance of I was going to say normal life, but I hope it's not the same as it was in the past. What do you hope we've learned from this? <sighs> well, one thing that I, I'm sure we've learned, Phil, is that we belong to each other, that there is no us and them anymore, and that each of us is necessary to remaking the world going forward so that the deepest lessons of loss and love and liberation that we have at least glimpsed during this time of deep darkness is it, it, each of these, these insights will help us going forward to co-create the world that we want to see a world that is rooted in an unshakable experiential knowledge of mutual belonging that we've that we've understood through through this crisis and so that that your particular piece whatever it is is absolutely needed and required and wanted and valued as we rebuild the world and that all of this uh, co-creative invitation is also rooted in, in a deep humility in knowing that we know nothing. We need people to know stuff, <laughs> to engineer solutions to our broken world. But just as much as that expert knowledge that is being cultivated in all the laboratories of the world right now, 
what is perhaps needed even more is that nakedness of spirit, that humility of heart that says, I actually don't know. I don't know who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. I don't know what what's good what's good and pure and what's evil and wrong. It's it's all different than I thought it was. And what I do need to show up with is a beginner's mind as I step in and rooted in that in that collective belonging, try to to hear and see what what is mine to offer. Lovely. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, we only have a minute or two left, uh, Mirabai. Um, I want to call people's attention to your website, Mirabai Star, two R's, MirabaiStar.com. And on there are some of the upcoming events that people may want to know about. I see the Hayden Dream Conference coming up. I see the life and teachings of Ramdas, the yoga of relationships. And optimistically, an in-person retreat in Hawaii, the Wild Mercy Women's Retreat, in, in a minute or so, do you have anything you'd like to tell people about these? Mm, thank you, Phil. Well, actually, there's one I'm super excited about that hasn't been posted yet because it, it's not quite ready, but Andrew Harvey and I are going to be doing a year-long Global Mystics Immersion Program through the Shift Network starting in August. So you can keep your eyes open for that. But it's almost like a mystical seminary. Wow. And we should, I'll tell people in case you're tuning into this series for the first time that my first guest uh, on this series was Andrew Harvey. Mm -hmm. So you can hear him there. Wonderful. That sounds great, actually. Mirabai, thank you so much. Um, I, I'm sure everybody listening has learned a great deal. I hope you've all been taking notes. Of course, you can listen to it again. It will be archived on uh, Unity Online. And uh, look for more from Mirabai at mirabaistar.com. And uh, be sure to join me next week when we'll have another wise and wonderful guest and uh, you can find me at my website philipgoldberg.com you can sign up for my mailings and learn more about my work and of course read my books especially spiritual practice for crazy times and uh, look at the archive of the other podcast that i co-host spirit matters we have a couple of hundred or more interviews, including Mirabai, who shares the record for most appearances at four, <laughs> and, and Andrew Harvey and many other people. Uh, and look for the Spirit Matters Talk YouTube channel as well and subscribe. Meantime, be well, be strong, be safe, and we'll see you next time. Thanks again, Mirabai. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.